For those that are staying and don't have a part in the program, you get one of these things. And I have to confess, I forgot candy again. I, I, it's been a while since I did that. Uh, but I still want to see it. If you fill, if you fill out the, the blanks there, and uh, um, you can come and see me at the back, and, and, uh, and I will give you a thumbs up. Uh, and maybe I'll remember candy next week, because um, I, I, I love seeing those. Um, as, we, uh, as we round the corner closer to Christmas, um, we're, we're a month away from Christmas Eve. Um, I just want to draw your attention. We have these two resources at the back. Um, this one's just a very simple, the true story of the nativity um, and, and just beautifully points to Christ coming as Savior. Um, just an easy thing. Grab one, throw it in your pocket, have it with you as you're having conversations. Um, it's an easy thing to hand out, to leave with somebody. Um, this one's a little more involved, just a mini booklet. Uh, it's the case for Christmas. It's Lee Strobel, the same guy that did the case for Christ. Um, and uh, maybe you've got a coworker who's like, really, you celebrate Christmas? You still, you actually believe that's true? Um, this, is a, this is a great resource to say, you know what? Maybe give it some thought. Um, just give this a read. Uh, and maybe read it yourself so you can pass it off to them and say, hey, let's talk about it afterwards. So those are at the back. And as we're putting them out, I'm realizing, boy, if nobody takes these in the next couple of weeks, they're going to be here until next Christmas again. So um, get rid of them. Let's uh, take, take those. But if you take it, um, you're promising to give it away and not just to hang on to it. Um, but uh, we're turning into uh, Philippians this morning. Um, I wonder how many of you, I thought we'd have all the kids, we have a couple of kids with us this morning, just a few, how many had a fight this week, or maybe an argument? Every child in my hand needs to put their, my house has to put their hand up, yeah, yeah, how about this morning? Um, How about for parents? I won't ask you to raise your hands. Um, How many had an argument this week? Or maybe to be a little broader, uh, how many had, uh, have, have relationships that are not what they should be, that, that are not functioning well? There's conflict, there's tension there. Um, we know that feeling, all of us. There's a lot of relational tension, even within the church. And to the point, sometimes, um, where churches split Bodies of believers like this one draw a line down the middle and half of us are going this way and half of us are going that way and we're going to have nothing to do with each other. Over even sometimes the smallest of things. Or other times, maybe not as obvious, but sometimes just as damaging, it just kind of simmers under the surface and there's just this air of tension. There's this lack of unity. And uh, we continue on um, like that awkward Thanksgiving dinner where there's two family members who have just kind of agreed not to fight, um, but everybody knows it's there. And we live in this world of conflict. That's part of living in a sinful world. We're not going to escape it. But as the church, we should be overcoming it. And I think that's uh, the beauty of what we see as we um, push into Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me there this morning. We're actually going to start kind of reviewing. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 27. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, just slow up your hand. One of our ushers uh, will put one into that hand. We want you to have God's word in front of you open so that you can see it. Um, It's not about what I have to say. I have nothing to say. Um, but we want to encourage you, Terry. I think there's one up here. 
Peter, do you need one? You good? Okay, I thought I saw. Um, so, yeah, it's about God's word. Um, and, and I have nothing of value. Um, this is all I've got. And so if you get halfway through the sermon and you're like, man, this guy has not said anything that isn't written here, um, then it's mission accomplished. Um, that's my goal. Because um, you don't want to know what I have to think, neither do I. Um, Philippians 1, 27 to 30, we looked at last week, um, talks about a life lived worthy of the gospel. A, a life in proper response to the fact that Christ died for our sin. And that's number one. That's our absolute. That's our calling. That's our identity. That is God's will for your life, a, a gospel-worthy life. And then he defines that, standing firm in our faith, not being moved, not getting pushed back, not... Uh, not moving on what we believe and what we stand for, and then striving forward for the faith of the gospel, growing in maturity, growing in strength of faith and in knowledge and understanding and depth of faith, moving forward as the church and seeing people saved and, and coming to be part of the church. And then finally, not being frightened in anything, being fearless in our faith, standing firm and striving forward. There's just absolute confidence that even if it costs us our lives, this is what we're after because we know that God is in it and God is over it and that even our suffering is from him and his grace. And we have this one singular focus to live a gospel-worthy life, a life that honors Christ. And I can do that if you let me live and I can do that if you kill me and I can do that if you make me suffer for Christ. So bring it on. And we talked about this gospel-worthy life then and how it actually has weaved through those verses is this idea of unity, building. It isn't just stand firm. It's stand firm in one spirit. And it's not just strive forward. He says in one mind, striving side by side. The gospel-worthy life, if you're doing the fill-in, is about unity. You can't say, I'm over here living the gospel-worthy life without unity because you can't say, I'm over here in one spirit by myself, right? You can't say, I'm over here striving side by side all alone. Nor can you say, I'm in one mind striving side by side with him. I just don't like him, right? We are together in unity, standing firm in one spirit. We're just not talking. It, it doesn't work. It can't be done. So here's the point this morning as we come into chapter two. We see the gospel-worthy life means a gospel-worthy unity. Do you live, do we as the church live day by day, week by week in a unity, a partnership, a fellowship a love and a closeness together that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a huge calling. That's a big ask. Especially in a group of people here who um, I hope by coming here this morning, we've all come as an act of admission. I'm a sinner that needs a savior. And so now we're asking a whole bunch of sinners to pack into a building and find unity together. It's a challenge. The gospel-worthy life demands this unity from us. And that's what Paul's 
driving at here. We're going to look at just verses 1, one to 4. And, and we start just laying the foundation for this gospel-worthy unity. It's going to continue to build over the next few weeks. Um, so let me read this passage for us. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Would you pray with me before we turn to God's word? Father, we need you. Lord, we are sinners who are broken, and we need your grace. Lord, even as we come to your word, we recognize our ability to be blind to what you have to say, our ability to twist what you have to say, And Lord, even now, I am so aware of my own ability to fail in clearly communicating what you have to say. God, would you be at work by your spirit? Lord, would you um, speak through me? Would you open our hearts to see your truth and your goodness? Lord, that you would be building a church here unified on your gospel gathered together in harmony and love together, striving forward uh, with a deep, meaningful peace. Father, we long to see it. Would you be at work? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we look at this passage starting in chapter 2, verse 1. It's interesting how Paul approaches this. Why is verse one even there? You ever ask that question as you're reading through scripture? Like, why is that there? What's its purpose? Um, you have to remember, he's, he's not typing on a computer. Uh, he's not sending an email. It's way too easy for us today to just kind of go on and on um, because it's easy to do. That's not Paul's world. Uh, writing materials are expensive. It's laborsome. This is work. Why does Paul not leave this out? Because he could have very simply gone from verses 27 to 30 and just skipped to verse 2, saying, because the, the, the gospel-worthy life is standing firm and striving forward, complete my joy by being of one mind. Just, just do it. Go. But this is actually really typical for Paul in, in how he writes and how he teaches in the church. Um, he so frequently does this where he, he builds the root before the fruit, right? He gives us the root here of gospel unity. And what I mean by that is, he, is he, that he talks about what is true, what's required before he gives us, sorry, what's, what's true before he gets to what's required. He gives us the why before he gives us the what. If you're a grammar nerd, he gives us the indicative before the imperative. So uh, kids, this is what I have in your feeling. He tells us what's true before what to do. Some of you already tried to put required in there. I'm sorry. Um, He tells us what's true before he tells us what to do. And the difference is significant. It's so important. Um, 
number of Paul's entire books are actually laid out this way. If you're reading uh, Ephesians chapter one to three are all about this is who you are in Christ. This is what's true about what Jesus has done on the cross and building the church. And then chapters four to six is here's what to do about it. Here's how to live in light of that. Um, The book of Romans um, chapters one to 11 is indicative. This is what's true about the sinfulness of man and our need for a savior and what the cross accomplished. And then verses 12 to 16 are the imperative. Now go, live it out. And so we have this kind of very mini version of that here. Verse one is the indicative. It's the root. This is the truth that should drive and and underpin what he's about to command. So verse one, as Paul says, if here, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, it's not really a question. Um, that's, That's an assumption. Kids, it's like when your mom tells you, if you want to eat supper, you'll clear the table. She's not wondering if you want to eat supper. Um, she's saying, because you want to eat supper, clear the table. And, and, and that's the reason Paul starts here. This because statement is so important. And it's our unity depends on these truths. Our unity depends on these truths. So, We should have unity and we can have unity in the church because these things are true. Or to put it another way, maybe a more convicting way, when we lack unity in the church, when we have tension and strife between us as believers, it's because we're not believing and walking in these truths. We've put them aside. We've in some way acted in a way that says, I don't really think that's true. So this is where we need to start. This is the root of it. These are the truths that are the foundation of what he's about to command in unity. And the first truth is this. You have encouragement in Christ. Now, encouragement has two sides to it. If I'm encouraging you to do something, um, what am I doing? I'm, I'm telling you to do it. It's, it's almost a command. I really encourage you to go do this. On the other hand, if you're struggling and having a hard time and you're, and you're feeling weak and, and sad and I come and encourage you, I'm helping, I'm strengthening you, I'm lifting your spirit. And, and actually the, the Greek word here is this beautiful picture of both of those. And, and words aren't always the, the meaning of the two words that are smashed together. You know, we talk about butterfly. Um, this word is parakaleo. Um, kaleo means call. Para means alongside. So encouragement in a biblical sense is to call someone alongside. And and what a great picture. Kids, you ever go for walks with your family? Maybe a long walk, maybe a hike out in the mountains. What happens when you or maybe your younger brother or sister starts to get tired, starts to fall further and further behind? What does your dad do? I bet one of the things he does is say, hey, come up here, right? Come and walk with me. Come and hold my hand. He's calling you alongside himself. And and there's a command to it. Come this way. Walk a little bit faster. Catch up to me. But there's also encouragement to it. So much nicer to walk with dad. Talk with him as you go. Hold his hand. He keeps you from stumbling and falling along the way. He keeps you on the right path. And there's just something about walking with dad. Um, you all of a sudden start walking the same speed as dad without even thinking about it. That's what, that's what we have in Christ. He's saying, come alongside me. 
It's a command and it's help in it. He's calling us forward in unity, encouraging us, both commanding and helping. So John 13, 34, a new command I give you, that you love one another. There's the command, do it. Love one another, have unity. But then he goes on, just as I have loved you, so you're also to love one another. I already did it. I've shown you how. Come and love alongside me. Come and love the way I loved. Do it like me. Do it with me. So we have this encouragement in Christ as we look to the gospels, we look to who Jesus is. And then secondly, we have comfort from love. What love? I think it's God's love. What is the root of our love for others? What, what gives us strength? I mean, love is absolutely essential to unity, right? We're getting real close to the same definition. What enables that? Well, we are to love as those who are loved. We have comfort in love. It's hard to give what you don't have. And, and that's really where so much relationship strife comes from. Um, I haven't been loved, so I'm not going to give love. I'm going to withhold that. It's not safe for me to love because I don't know if I'll get any back. Now, one way we try to solve that is by human love, right? If you're loving to them, maybe they'll be loving to you. And, and we all just need to love each other and then it would be okay. Then everyone would run, run smoothly. The problem is that cycle is going to break down every single time, right? That's what sin does. And so it doesn't work to rely on reciprocal love. God says, no, you have comfort in my love. I'm not talking about the love of of other people. It's the love of God that ought to be our comfort, our strength. Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we, we walk in love as those who are beloved children. It's easy to think, uh, how can I love that person when they're just being mean to me? How, how do I love them when they won't love me in return? That's, that's not fair, right? And that instinct of the human heart is, is going to be to withhold love out of, out of fear of not being loved. It hurts to love someone and not be loved in return to pour something out without being filled up again. How do we overcome that, that sinful human instinct? It's by knowing the truth, that, that we have the comfort of the love of God. He has loved you. And his love, the love of God himself, should be so much more important to us, should be so much more reassuring and confidence-giving than the love of any or all people. Loved by God. We can love anybody. We can love even our, our enemies. That's our comfort. That's our safety net. That's our, our foundation, our security, our identity is there in the love of God. And, and how do we know the love of God? In Christ. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us that he saw when we were sinners and rebels against him. And, and he, God himself, as holy and righteous, had every right to give us his judgment, to send us to hell as we deserved. 
And instead he poured out his love in the person of Christ, sending him to die on the cross to reconcile us to himself. Wow, that's a lot of love. That's a significant foundation that we have. We have been fully loved. And and out of that comfort is how we love others. So we have this encouragement in Christ. We have comfort in the love of God. And then we have participation in the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're saved, if you're truly His, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That's huge. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. All of us. Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, then he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you have the spirit of Christ dwelling in you, the Holy Spirit. And so we have the Holy Spirit, but the point is together. We have this participation in the Holy Spirit, this partnership in the Holy Spirit, a fellowship there that that unites us, that brings us together in Him. That's what Paul's getting at in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that we just read a minute ago. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, it doesn't matter who you are, how different you are, where you've come from. If you're in Christ, if you've come to him in faith, he's baptized us. Baptism just means to submerge. He's submerged us together into one family. The church, one body. So no matter how different you are from the other believers around you, we're together. We're united. We're all submerged into this one family. Hey, they're black and you're white. Maybe you're super rich and they're dirt poor. Maybe you're loud and outspoken and they're quiet and and timid. Whatever it is, um, we've been pushed together in this partnership in the spirit into one body, submerged together into the church. And in the spirit, as the church, we have this mission together, this partnership together to be the church. That's who we are, united together. And then finally, last of all, Paul says you have affection and sympathy. These two go go together as, as one unit. And I think his point is simply building these things, walking kind of along the way here in Christ, loved by God, united in the spirit. Don't you have some affection and sympathy for those around you? For those who are in the same place as you are? Isn't there some growing place of love in your heart for the, for the people who've walked that same path that you have, who are there together with you? We're all called by Christ. We've all been saved from sin. We're all striving to to grow in Christ together. We're all fighting the same battle against the sin in us. Don't you find a love in your heart for those who are on that path? We're called to this true, deep, meaningful unity, again, not just on the surface, not just exterior, not, not just, hey, I know everybody, not just, I don't have a problem with anybody, but, but a real linking arms together. Not a, not a fake smile and a, a hollow decision just to not start a fight, but love. 
One-mindedness. This affection and sympathy for one another. The word sympathy there is, is compassion. It's, it's tender-heartedness. Why would I be tender-hearted towards someone who just poked me in the eye? Why, why would I have sympathy for them? That doesn't make any sense. They, they hurt me. Okay? True. I'm not going to minimize that. Maybe it was outright sin and it needs to be confronted. But we ought to have a tenderheartedness there. Realizing, boy, that sin of theirs that poked me, um, that's, that's their enemy too. That's the, the same kind of sin that I wrestle with. Maybe a little bit different, but not entirely. We ought to understand what it looks like to, to battle with sin and to see our emotions maybe get out of control. And we know, yep, they offended me. They hurt me. And I have sympathy for them as they're wrestling with that sin in themselves. Because guess what? I am way more like them than I am like Jesus. I'm way closer to being in their position. We're the same. And so they're not my enemy. They're my teammate against that sin that comes between us. So we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice and we bear one another's burdens and we strive together. And so as I come to someone saying, hey, you, you hurt me there, you, you sinned against me, we're not coming against them, I'm trying to partner with them and fight against that sin that's causing the disunity. And that kind of unity, that meaningful, purposeful unity um, isn't just something you decide to do. We just don't choose, hey, we're going to have unity here any more than a thorn bush just decides to grow grapes. That's why this root is so important. That's why these if statements are absolutely necessary. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and, and the fact is if you're not in Christ, this won't happen. If you're not walking in real personal faith in him with a, a renewed heart and live spirit filled with the Holy Spirit, this, this isn't going anywhere. That's stop number one. Is us on our knees before Christ. I need you. But if that's true, if there is encouragement in Christ, if there is comfort in the love of God, then we're one. We are united. This is part of our DNA as the church. So let that soak in. Let these things define you. Encourage yourself. Speak these truths to yourself. I don't want to love that person. John, you have encouragement in Christ. You have comfort in the love of God. You have participation together with this person in the spirit. Now do it. Now let's go, let's act on that truth that builds this affection and, and tenderheartedness towards one another in the church. And only once Paul has laid that root, that foundation, reminding us who we are, does he then move to the fruit. And he hits this fruit in two stages. Um, verse two is about being. And then verses three and four are about Doing. So verse 2, the first fruit of this gospel unity is this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
The first fruit of gospel unity is being of one mind. One mind together. But I want to notice first how personal this is for Paul. He starts saying, make my joy complete. He is so invested in this church and what's happening there and specifically in their unity. Why? Well, think about it. What has he already told us about himself as we've come through chapter one? Verse 21, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's my goal. That's my joy, to see Christ glorified. Verse 22 then, he says, if I'm to live in the flesh, if I'm gonna continue on glorifying Christ with my life, that's fruitful labor. That's how I do it, working in the church to see fruit. So his joy increases as he glorifies Christ laboring in the church. So make my joy complete, we'll connect the dots. His joy is complete when his labor in the church is glorifying Christ and the church is glorifying Christ as they walk in unity together, being of one mind together. So what does that mean, be of one mind? Um, My first two thoughts are, um, that sounds impossible and boring, right? What does it mean? Does this mean we all have the same clothes, the same kinds of music? We all, you know, do the same things, like the same things, One, that's impossible. We're different. We're just unique. Um, We're going to have different interests, different preferences. And then two, that would be boring. Nobody wants a bunch of Christian clones walking around. Now, the beauty of the church is wrapped up in this picture of diversity. And so I I get why um, we we like to have churches of people that are like us, and we kind of build these affinity churches, and you have the, the cowboy church where the cowboys go and and you have the black church where they actually clap in rhythm with their whole bodies and and we try but we're you know we're not there yet um and and you have the traditional church where they sing the the songs from the 70s and wear the suits from the 70s and and i get that we like to be around people who are like us but the beauty of the church is this glimpse into heaven with people from every tribe and nation and tongue people from every walk and way of life in this crazy mixing of random people who have nothing, no no business hanging out together, nothing to do with each other except for the fact that they're unified in Christ. The church is, is very different people united in Christ. And, and in Christ, though radically different, they have the same mind. This, this word here, my, it's, it's like mindset, heart attitude, the same way of thinking. We have the same unifying goal in life. Living together in unity after this gospel-worthy life. Seeking to honor Christ, to live as Christ, to die is gain. And so Paul goes on to explain this gospel unity is having the same love. This, this supernatural love that they share with one another, rooted in the love of God, it's unexplained. Um, it, it doesn't make sense how this holds them together except that there's some other source of love that's feeding this. Those loved by God, loving one another. And then he says being in full accord. What, is, what does that mean? 
Well, it's, it's similar language, again, to what he used up in, in verse 27. Um, it's a little bit confusing because the, there in, in, uh, in 27, um, it says, in one mind, striving together. Um, literally, it should be translated in one soul. And then here where it says in full accord, it's, it's actually very similar wording used, um, literally united in soul. And so the translators use these different words, but it's the same it's the same phrasing happening there. It's the same idea. Um, this gospel unity is being united in soul, in our, our passions and, and our, our heart together. And then again, at the end, he comes back around to one mind again, just to drive that home. So this, this united passion, united heart and goal together and Again, thinking back to 127, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's Paul's definition of a church that brings glory to Christ. That's this gospel-worthy unity, united in mind, united in love, one soul together. Are you tied into the church that way? And I don't mean this building on Sunday morning. And these people, we're the church. Are you connected? Or is the church just a secondary thing? It's, it's auxiliary to my life. It's just something I do every now and then. It's an optional extra. It's a good place to go, I guess. Are you united in, in one mind, in love and in soul with the church. This is, this is my family. This is my home. These are the people that I'm striving together with to honor Christ, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, bearing one another's burdens. That's what we're called to be. That's what it means to be the church. And we should be there because we have this, this encouragement in Christ and this comfort and love and this participation together in the spirit being of one mind, one love, full accord. So that's the first fruit is this, this way that we're to be together in one mind. And then secondly, verses three and four, what are we to do? What does that look like? And Paul says, here's what it looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's this one mind at work. The second fruit of gospel unity is to live humble. He starts with a negative. Do nothing out of pride and conceit. And then is the positive, do this, count others more significant than yourselves. And right in the middle is the key, in humility. Live humble. Do nothing from, from selfish ambition and conceit. That's tough. You ever just stop and think, why do I do the things that I do? Why, did I, why do I drive like that? Why did that conversation go the way that it went? What drives you? Do you speak and act and serve and interact with others so that people will see you, be impressed by you, so that you'll get more prominent position or influence, so you'll get what's coming to you, so that people will be 
impressed by you? What, what motivates you? Are you building and protecting self? Or in humility, are you counting others as more significant? He explains more what that means. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Do you count the interests, the needs, the concerns, the the fears and hurts, the joys and comforts of others before your own? That's hard. That goes against everything that we're about. We are me first, look out for number one people. That happened at the fall and it hasn't changed. Humility calls us to think about others first. There's a real life sacrifice and cost to that. Giving of ourselves, focused on the interest of others. You wonder why people get married and they go, oh, that's harder than I thought it would be. You know, marriage kind of puts a spotlight on that, doesn't it? Then you think you got that under control and you have a kid and kids don't let you put anything else first. You guys are figuring that out real quick. It's rough. It grates on us. I just want my me time. What do you mean you want me to serve you? That's humility. That's, that's what it means to live together in unity. It's putting others first giving of ourselves for the interests of others, giving up our own comfort to comfort someone else, giving up our own preferences for the preferences of someone else. Humility doesn't ask, what can I get? It asks, what can I give? How can I serve? How can I bless? How can I help? And of course, if you're familiar with the flow of the book of Philippians, you you know where this is going. Um, These next sentences just drive this home. What's our perfect example of considering the interests of others? The, the perfect humility is being like Jesus. So look at the progression here. He says, complete my joy in verse two of being of the same mind. And then the end of verse two, it's be of one mind. And then if you peek down to verse five, it's this mind. What is the same singular mind we're to have among us? It's the mind that's ours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be hung on to, but he emptied himself by taking on the human, sorry, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Talk about cost. Talk about giving up himself for our need. He took on the form of a servant, being obedient, even to death on a cross. Now, we're gonna unpack that more next week, but you just, you can't, you can't cut between these verses. The logic flows so seamlessly But humility is to lay down your life like Jesus. We're back to John 13, 34. A new command I give you to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. They're they're about to learn what that really means. How do we love one another the way Christ loved us? Well, by laying down our lives for one another. 
Really, what sacrifice is Christ asking you to make? What do you need to do to pursue this kind of unity in the church? What is it that you need to give up? And how small is it compared to what Christ gave up for you? Think about your relationship to the church, your relationship to the individuals in the church. What do you need to lay down to look to the interests of others? I need to lay down my desire for comfort in order to meet that person's need to feel welcomed and loved. I need to lay down my desire to protect myself, to keep my struggles and secrets safe, my desire for privacy and autonomy in order to meet the needs of others, to know what it's like to be walking along side one another through this messy life, growing together. I need to lay down my desire to have a a peaceful, easy life in order to meet that person's need, to have someone bearing their burden with them, walking together through a dark season. I need to lay down my right to feel justified and and self-righteous in order to extend forgiveness to someone who's wronged me, to even apologize for my part in it, maybe small as it was. I need to lay down my desire to come on Sunday and just be a a consumer. This is a great place to go and they they bring to me and they give me and and the worship is good for me and I need to come and serve, expend my energy to to welcome others. The list goes on and on and the, the fruit of how this plays out is gonna be uniquely personal to you, but the root is the same. The root is central to who we are as the church. And as we live in that, as we anchor in that, we build our identity in this fact that we're encouraged in Christ and comforted in the love of God and participating together in the spirit, filled with affection and tenderheartedness with one another, then that flows out. The kind of church that frankly, I wanna be a part of. That's, that's what I'm after. That's the church that's truly standing firm in one spirit, that's in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's beautiful. And it's for our own good. We need it together. And it starts with that healthy root. It starts with looking to Jesus, knowing, trusting, walking closely with him. If we're not strong in that root, then, then, the, then the fruit is, is, is way off. We're not getting there. We're going to close celebrating communion together. I'll invite the worship team to come. Just reminding ourselves again of the cross. Reminding ourselves again of what it means that that we're sinners who need a savior and what God did for us. But don't miss that part of the imagery of communion as we celebrate is the unity of the church. 1 Corinthians 10 16, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a fellowship together in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. We come together all drinking and eating together and symbolizing our, our unity, our togetherness in this as a body, as a fellowship, united by the sacrifice of Christ. As we remember his death on our behalf, our salvation, 
accomplished on the cross, we also declare this is what binds us together. That's why it's so serious. 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul begins to teach about the Lord's Supper, and he says, when you come together as the church, I hear there's division among you. And he scolds them, he chastises them. And he says in verses 27 to 30, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. So to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. That's a terrifying passage. Do you come to communion without considering the body, without considering the unity of the church? Do you take communion declaring our unity together when in reality there's, there's unresolved conflict, there's divisions among us? Paul warns, don't, don't ignore that. Don't, don't, just, don't just brush that under the carpet, pretending everything's fine. That's dangerous. Because of God's discipline, some have become sick and even died. Now, I get it. reconciliation takes two people. And, and sometimes the other person is simply not willing and there's only so much you can do. And so the question isn't, you know, do you have perfect harmony in all of your relationships? The question is, are you striving for that? Are you willing to do what needs to be done? Are you coming in repentance and doing all that you can do? Or have you been sinfully refusing to forgive, sinfully refusing to reconcile? and holding on to that division. And maybe that's some here this morning, I don't know. Maybe you need to pass on communion because it would be a false statement about your unity in the church. You need to just kind of sit this one out so that two weeks from now when we celebrate communion again, you can do it right. You can come back having, having repaired and restored those relationships or at least having done all that depends on you and rejoice and celebrate it in truth and honesty in a way that honors the Lord. Maybe that's some here this morning. But for all of us, this communion this is a beautiful picture of who we are as a church. This is that, that reminder, again, painted in front of us of the encouragement we have in Christ, the comfort that we have in love, the participation we have together in the Spirit. Lord, we are so grateful and amazed and what you have accomplished on our behalf to see the Lamb of God in my place on the cross for my sin, that we might be raised to new life. God, what hope, what glory, what comfort is there. Lord, help us to live rooted in that truth, resting in that. And Lord, that flowing out of that would come a beautiful unity in the church, a love for one another where tenderheartedness is rich, where forgiveness is quick, where love is poured out, where we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel that your name might be proclaimed, Lord. We praise you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.